Welcome to the Brody Sattva Podcast. I'm Enoch Daniel. Like a lot of men of a certain age, my good friend Sosh and I have felt a sense of dissatisfaction. We're settled and successful, but we also have our struggles and personal demons. For the past couple of years, we've been on a journey to become better men. By that, I mean better husbands, better fathers, better human beings, just better at this thing called life. And now we've decided to share that journey with you and invite you along for the ride. We'll be speaking with each other, as well as others with wisdom to share, and hopefully some of you. We're here to ask the important questions, such as, how can we be better men and still tell dick jokes? And what can a couple of bros learn about the path to enlightenment anyway? Let's find out and become better together. Get jacked on mindfulness, philosophy, mental health, and connection, starting right Today, we are so lucky to have on our show Dr. Jason Newell. Dr. Newell received his B.A. in psychology from Auburn University and an M.S.W. and Ph.D. in social work from the University of Alabama. He is a licensed independent clinical social worker and a private individual practitioner with endorsement in clinical and social casework. Dr. Newell has been in the fields of social work practice, research, and education for over 19 years. He's also just a great guy. Jason is a personal friend, which is good for us because this is our first foray into interviewing on the Brody Sapa podcast. It is just as professional as you would expect it to be from us, but Jason is an incredibly kind and gracious guest. And he has a lot of wisdom to share. There's a lot of gold in here, folks. So without further ado, let's get into it. I was reading Brene Brown last night, and I felt like she was talking directly to me because she was talking about uh, vulnerability and how vulnerable should you be and the idea of sort of spotlighting and throwing out, you know, more oversharing, in other words, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in in some ways, if you want to do something like this, you have to share a lot. You would really like her. I don't know her well, but I, she and I are in the same discipline. Yeah. So I know of her before she was like this person. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She's a drink. Well, she's in recovery and has been sober for a long time. Uh-huh. But I have these like, you know, memories of her before who she, we kind of think she is. Yeah. You know, as being this really methodical and serious researcher who's found something, you know, that's the researcher's journey in life is you just want to freaking find something that that you can mine for the rest of your life that that rocks the world. And she's done it. Uh um, But behind all of that is is so much. Well, I think that's I think that's part of her appeal is she's just she's messy and she doesn't really hide the messiness. It's if she wasn't if she didn't lead with that vulnerability, it it wouldn't be nearly as powerful, which I think is is part of her uh, part of her charm. You don't have quite the accent. I think if you really cultivated the Texan accent, you could be, you know, it's harder now that I'm not drinking, you know, you get Everybody a couple of makes us you, talk like that. You get a couple of beers in me. It starts to come out. <laughs> My Alabama one actually does too, which is, which is interesting. Um, there's a whole other side eating that you don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm Jason. Nice to meet hey, you. Hey Jason. 
How's it going, brother? I've heard a lot about you actually from eating. <clears throat> okay. But those, just so you know, that bio is a mask. That's that's the eight to five, Jason. He's there's yeah, yeah. Good depth to that. Today we have Dr. Jason Newell. Welcome, Jason. Glad you could be here today, man. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for the invitation. I, I'm excited. I'm also a little nervous um, about what you guys are going to do with me on here, but uh, it's going to be really, really bad. Good to be here, and uh, I'm glad to see this um, this website and, and podcast take off. I'm excited. I, I told Jason he should expect sort of junior high, middle school dance awkwardness here. Like that—that's the vibe that we're we're going. That's. I was totally imagining Chris Farley just sitting beside him, shaking, going. So remember that time, Jason, <laughs> that you were in that one movie? Yeah. Remember when you were in that movie? That was- Cool. That was awesome. <laughs> That's basically what we're going to do. We're going to try to keep it in our pants and, and, you know, keep this thing professional. Well, and I, I think my response to Enoch was, you know, that that's one of my gifts. So that should work really That's well. your wheelhouse, huh? Being, <laughs> being, being awkward and dorky is kind of my thing. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. So I've got to, just to start out with, I'm, I'm curious, what led you into psychology and, and then onto social work? Uh, how did that journey kind of take place for you? Yeah, it wasn't linear. Um, I think, you know, and we've talked about this, I seem all very methodical most of the time and, and, you know, kind of like one of those guys with his head on straight. And that's, that's true, you know, like maybe most of the time. Um, but the big things that have happened in my life have, have not been linear. I, I never wanted to be in psychology. I never wanted to do that work growing up. Um, I was a super serious kid and this kind of dates me a little bit, but I was really kind of like an Alex P. Keaton. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do in second grade. I knew, you know, kind of like what all the other kids wanted to be firemen and policemen. And I was like, no, I'm going to be an attorney. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm watching those guys on TV and I, that that's what's going to happen. And so I kind of knew that was what I was going to do until I went to college and, and talked of nothing, you know, my parents will tell you, I talked of nothing growing up other than, you know, getting out of the small town I grew up in and going to law school. And, but, you know, as I grew into kind of adolescent and sort of, uh, I think that's probably when the, the intuitive part of my personality started to reveal itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really sort of a, highly sensitive kid in so many ways I was really sensitive to other people's thoughts and feelings and um you know and I don't really call it an empath ability I think that's kind of overused right now but I like to call it an intuitive sense that that not everyone has and and I think my parents in a lot of ways just didn't really know what to do with that I grew up in in rural southeast Alabama uh, you know, about 6,000 people in my town. It was, it was very, very homogenous, um, very traditional Southern sort of culture place. And so to be kind of highly sensitive and feeling centered and kind of in your own head, wasn't, it just didn't, wasn't a goodness of fit there for me. And we've, so we've talked about that some yeah. before too. You know, I, I, I definitely identify with growing up that, that young, maybe overly sensitive boy, or, or just the one who feels things strongly. And uh, a lot of times, you know, society and even dads just don't know what to do with that. Enoch, in one of our other conversations not long ago, used, you know, the term bookish to describe someone. And Mm -hmm. it resonated with me because that's kind of how I spent my childhood. I would have much rather been in my room reading a book 
uh, you know, than out like, you know, hunting or fishing, which was, you know, those are the two things you do when you go up in rural Southeast Alabama is you do one of those two things. I was interested in one. And so I got to college and, you know, kind of found psychology to be interesting. Um, it wasn't like love at first sight or anything. And I used it incidentally as kind of a gateway with my family that, you know, this would be a really good four-year degree that would probably, you know, serve me well to get into law school, you know, learning human behavior and kind of learning how people think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and there was no real intention to ever go into law school. <laughs> <laughs> how long did you keep up that ruse? Well, really until... I went to the University of Alabama with the intention of going to law school and ended up in MSW school instead. Um, <laughs> over on the other side Just of campus. Make wrong turn in Albuquerque. You know, social work, people don't understand. We're kind of a misunderstood discipline in a lot of ways and went to work for, you know, the DOD. I worked in the VA healthcare system for five years and did my dissertation work there in a VA hospital. Well, that's, that's God's work, man. Uh, <laughs> taking care of the vets. That's awesome. It was a great experience. Um, and we did such good research there. That's really where I learned mm -hmm. how to be a researcher and where I learned how to research trauma, um, mm -hmm. where I learned, you know, how to engage the stories of people who were suffering, you know, and combat trauma is a very specific form mm -hmm. um, of trauma. And so that was kind of the start of the career. And that's, that's kind of where the journey began. Yeah. Yeah. And you it, you it was what 2008 you sw uh, kind of switched gears again and went to uh join the teaching staff at the university of montevallo Valo, it's montevallo and so again that was not in the plan i was perfectly happy <laughs> when i stayed at phoenix i had a nice office over at the va hospital i was doing uh -huh. research arguably with one of the best research psychiatrists in the united states and so you know i was perfectly set and my wife happens to be from Montevallo and okay. went to college there and a job popped open and you know I, I wasn't really on the market not on the academic market so to speak you know I was a dork I wanted to be in you know doing research and collecting mm -hmm. data and analyzing it and writing papers and you know that was home for me so my wife says well you know you should at least interview for this job and you know at least you'd have had the experience of interviewing for an academic job. And I went there and interviewed that day. And I don't know if it was, it's, it's really something about being here because I came back home and said, if I'm, they don't call me back for a second interview, I'm going to be really disappointed. Wow. And this was in 2008, like in the recession, if you have a good, you know, solid federal job and Heck yeah, federal benefits. Yeah. Don't, don't put your house on the market, man. Don't sell. It's not going to sell the marking, you know, housing market was in the toilet. Mm -hmm. So we went to the beach and kind of prayed about it. And we sold that house in like nine days. Wow. And we were homeless. Like it sold while we were on vacation. So we just kind of felt like, you know, <laughs> There it is. You, you're you're moving to Montevallo now, and you're going to give this a shot. That's you know, such a big, sh such a big shift, though, man. I mean, that's really it's a it's a brave story. Were you just you know shitting your pants or what? It's those moments, though, and meeting my wife was like that. This job was like that. The big things, like the big things that really change your life for me, have never been premeditated or planned. They just show up, and it's like you have to make a decision when they show up. 
and you just when you know you know huh mm -hmm. i kind of want to yeah i want to get back to that just for a second is you've been a researcher and now you're getting a job as you know, a teacher you're going to be up in the middle you know broadcasting lecturing to me and this is somebody who loves to be in the middle of the stage and all that lecturing for that long that just kind of terrifies i mean had you had experience before then doing much of that or yeah it is flexing a whole different skill set right <laughs> yeah so as a doctoral student i had some time you know with students as a teaching assistant and sort of working under the mentorship of some really strong professional educators um, in terms of holding my own stage, and I'm very introverted, I'm perfectly happy in my office one-to-one, -one, you know, working with a client that suits me really well. It, it took me some time to get used to that, hmm. but the relationship was different. You know, I was really infatuated when I got there about these young people, and I was younger at the time. So, you know, I'm 29 or 30 years old, so I wasn't that much older, Um than the college students I was working with. And, and part of my work at the VA had been with sort of the first, so the OIF, OEF, if you will, the Operation Enduring slash Iraqi Freedom Group, sort of our first wave of National Guard men, women, and soldiers who went overseas into that conflict. They were young, they were chronological mm -hmm. peers. You know, these were guys from Alabama um, who were, you know, 20, 22, 23 years old and just suffering such intense yeah you know trauma and coming back from the shit yeah and so you get to college and you realize that college you know while it's certainly not a combat zone but it's certainly a place where you have a developmental crisis i mean it's a place where you learn the most in your life and it's probably the most vulnerable if hmm. you know you can be in your life it's just that age range from 18 to 24 is is just not easy and so i you know a lot of it kind of felt normal for me um it felt good um it felt like the people that i train want to go into the world and do good and that's really important for me sort of in my purpose is you know these these little men and women are extensions of me they're going out and helping other people and so there's a great sense of pride there that i can be a part of that journey that's a nice feeling yeah and yeah, our graduates go out in the world and they do work. Um, they really feel drawn to the human experience and drawn to, you know, human suffering in a way that they can help that and, and provide a service that, that will help people get to a better place. That's great. Yeah, I, I feel good within that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's wonderful. I, it's one of the things that I think about in sort of the, the, the Brody Sattva philosophy is this idea that, that happiness can't be the goal. Happiness is sort of a byproduct and, and, and you, you find it through things like meaningful work. And when you have that much, when you can feel that much meaning in the work that you're doing, that that's got to feel good. That's wonderful. Yeah. It keeps yeah you we're trying cool. to teach each other that we can find that even in, in doing the dishes. <laughs> the trash out. That's, what, that's what we're, that's our end goal here. We're okay. a work in progress, though. Um, yeah, 10% less shitty. That's very zen, where they say, you know, appreciate doing the dishes and, you know, cleaning up all the, you know, crap diapers and, you know, the things that you do as parents. It's really hard to, to keep that mindset. So, Jason, um, <clears throat> tell me about your research a little bit. Uh, do you have a particular focus or anything you're particularly interested in? 
Yeah, so I mean, most of my research has revolved around helping people to stay professionally resilient. That's sort of the variable, that part of part of my sort of socially constructing that that idea of what professional resilience means and how do we achieve that as the outcome. And you know, particularly for those of us when you're around people and they suffer and you're responsible for their health and their well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a heavy burden to have you know Mm -hmm. to carry the burden of other people's pain like that and then go home and just you know switch that gear off knowing that you know everyone in your family has needs too and so what I was always really fascinated with how how people who choose to do human service work navigate that you know Mm -hmm. what does that look like and social work has long since had the reputation I mean people will say why would you want to do a social worker's job they burn out and a lot of the data is really on the people who leave. So it's kind of like if you only talk to the people, <laughs> yeah. you know, the methodological failure, if you're only sort of talking selection to bias. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what about all the people that stayed? And so, so my work really, you know, focused on those who stayed in the business, what kept you here, how has this profession served you and how can we measure that so that, so that others can see hmm. that there's so much good in this work. Yeah, you know, it's it's such difficult work, and, and we don't want the rep, at least I don't want the reputation in my profession of it being not good work because it's right. such good yeah. work. Yeah, it's important, and, but it'll eat you alive. You know, that's not exactly what you want to put out there. No, that's not the job application you want. It's not what you want parents thinking when they send their kids to school. Yeah, don't do that. Be a stockbroker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not a high suicide risk rate there. Uh, and, and the burnout rate is really low. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, rewarding. Yeah, well, you get a lot of reward out of, you know. Sure. Selling, uh, you know, viable companies. It really does, you know. Yeah. Builds you up for the long haul in life. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. It does. And- what did you notice in your research? Are there a particular set of characteristics or practices that help with resilience that, that define sort of those resilient people, the ones who stick? Yeah. So the, the quick and dirty of that would be that the key to professional resilience is your self-care practices, what you do when you're not at work and how mm-hmm. you use the time that you have and protect the time that you have with your family and protect mm-hmm. the time that you, you know, you have with things that are life giving for you and resisting the urge to move to things that don't serve you. Mm-hmm. And we can insert all of our vices into that. It's pretty simple. And also being mindful of when you're working, when you're not on the clock. So it's kind of like, I'm here at the soccer game. I'm watching everything going on. Mm-hmm. but am I cognitively here? Am I emotionally here? Am I really watching what's going on and engaging my family or am That's I still That's so work? hard. That is so Take hard. Take our work home with us up here, whether we want to or not, just because you leave the building, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean the work is gone. And so part of that is acknowledging that and, and just knowing that you've got to find a way, you know, to filter that in some way, there's got to be a buffering effect, mm-hmm. um, to keep you to keep you balanced because if you become your work mm. that's a place of imbalance mm-hmm. your life is so much more than that right yeah. your work your work should serve you to serve your family and to serve your life right and and you know that's a good people, quote man say that again 
your work should serve you so that you can serve your family and serve your life. And I do this in my workshops. Tell me your most important thing, you know, and we'll list it out and, and sort of start brainstorming around and values and other things. It's never my job as a doctor. It's always, well, my, my wife and these, these children of mine and, you know, and their happiness and putting braces on their teeth and all the things that I'm going to have to do as a parent, that's my most important thing. Yeah. So if work causes suffering, you know, and what's most important in life, then you will suffer by that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that as Westerners, because particularly men who are just, it's ingrained in you that you are what you do. You know, mm -hmm. that your career is so much a part of your identity that we are trained from the moment we come up, you know, to cultivate career mm -hmm. and, you know, cultivating family, cultivating relationships, cultivating spirituality, cultivating your health is all secondary to that. That's all underneath. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think about it, anytime you, you meet a man, like that's your first question out of your mouth. What do you do? What yeah. do you do? And you don't mean like, what do you do with your kids on Saturday afternoon? <laughs> or what do you do for enjoyment? Yeah. 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 I mean, if you said, you know, what do you do? You said, well, you know, I eat a lot. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy cooking. <laughs> I do a podcast. I kind of, you know, just fly by the seat of my pants and let my, let my brother do all the work. That's I'm not going to tell you what the name of it is because I, I don't want you to listen to it. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. I pronounce it wrong every time. I'm pretty sure it's a made up word, but I don't have the. It's an amalgam, dude. I don't have the courage to tell it's a It's a thing. <laughs> so I was uh, going back to what you were saying, Jason. You struck a nerve with me when you talked about being present when you're not at work, like not letting work be the thing, the place where you are, even when you're not there. And I know that me personally, when I'm out of balance, that is one of my biggest, my bigger shame cycles I get into is I'm talking to my kids, but I'm not really there. Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the reasons I've been successful at doing work like this is because it's a familiar pattern for me. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife would say I'm married to a workaholic who does research on workaholism, you know, <laughs> research is me search. And so, you know, I know that, you know, the pitfalls there exist for all of us and kind of owning that is helpful in the journey. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome, man. Do you want to talk a little bit about your current writing project? Well, it's, it's different. Um, so my first book was, was really academic. Parts of it I was happy with. It's kind of like everything else and parts of it I, I wish I had been able to do a little differently. You'd redo and the sex scenes if you could? Yeah, I, I would definitely include the swearing, you know, and, and all the stuff that, that people really want to read. Mm -hmm. Guys, particularly in reading a book, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it lacked some of the qualitative data. And, and so that kind of hmm. led me to where I am now. And wanting to focus on men's health and wellness, it's an untapped and sort of underutilized area of research. We don't have a lot of information. I mean, about that's, why, that's why we're here too, okay. you know, that, that we think that men's work is important. You know, it's the women and, and maybe the guys like us who are really wanting to practice some personal growth have read Brene Brown and they have kind of Oprah and they have these iconic people 
that they, you know, women will line up around the you know corner to buy the latest book, but I couldn't mm-hmm. think in my head of one single publication. Yeah. Um, that men are really seeking out. Yeah. You know, in terms of how can I read this book and and be a better husband, be a better father. I mean, the biggest the biggest things out there. I mean, pe- the biggest names out there. People like Terry Real and like mm-hmm. are not household names. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you got to go digging to find that guy. But they're under rocks and uh, hidden on the shelves of your psychologist uh, office. And, uh, you know, you're not going to find them, you know, sitting on the end of the aisle at Barnes and Noble. You're exactly right. And so I think my my vision for the next project is to use kind of a, I would love to do a qualitative study and do immersive storytelling. And one of the things that I've found from working with men in therapy for so long is that men may not always be into just sitting around and sharing feelings that can be really difficult mm-hmm. to just, that's just not organic all the mm-hmm. time. That's something that you really have to work on. But men tend to be, this is where the Alabama accent will come out. They tend to be dang good storytellers. Like they can tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I think capturing the story is, is so important. And so the, the nature of this study is really going to be listening to men tell their stories of suffering in, in an honest and vulnerable way so that we can capture some data on what the lived experience is like. What about men who are recovering from alcoholism? What about men who've experienced the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse? Mm-hmm. You know, what about men who've experienced financial ruin during the pandemic. And so there are all these other stories, I think, that are worth telling. Sosha's, uh, I'm sure the, the same as, as me, like that, that, that line, that, that angle you're talking about, about how men are storytellers, that really lit me up. That's a, that could be really powerful. Yeah, that, that's the hope. So I was sitting here trying to think of guys that I've, I've read or, 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 um, that have been kind of like the self-help kind of guru. And the reason I was trying to bring this back around is because Jason earlier said something that really struck a chord with me. And that's that whole, you know, 18 to 24 year old male. All right, let me slow this down for a second. Uh, Jason, I really had a a terrible time between 18 and 24. I got really lost. And it's only these past couple of years that I feel like I'm finally starting to do some actual work to bring myself out of this hole that I dug so yeah, so social was social was very much my first brush with somebody who was severely clinically depressed and I did not know what to do with it or what the hell was going on I just knew the guy couldn't get out of bed before three in the afternoon <laughs> yes <laughs> well I think a lot of college students including myself had that problem mine wasn't necessarily depression but maybe more alcohol induced <laughs> you know but 18 to 24 in terms of the clinical data search is when that would reveal itself. So as from my perspective as a doctor, that makes perfect sense. That window is when those behaviors in men tend to reveal themselves and they don't always reveal themselves in men as um, down, sad, or blue. So there may have been times when you felt that way, but you may have just been angry as hell. Yes. And that's what I've come to f- find out more in my latter life is mine, mine had extreme 
I get very manic. I get very loud and very want everybody to see how awesome I am and get very uh, bristly. Like I, I take things way too personally from my child, you know, children, wife, everybody who has my own best interest in heart, even to this day, but definitely back then. And then I doubled down on that with just, you know, flogging myself in my own head at the same time, building myself up. And I had no idea how to deal with that and really want, really could have used, uh, cause I, I was trying, um, you know, I was trying therapy at the time. I was trying a lot of different things and I felt like there just wasn't a, a decent guide. And I felt like no one was looking and actually telling me things that could have helped. So that's kind of what was striking a chord with me was this guide mm -hmm. of, Hey, this is what you need to do. You know, th these are the signs you need to look for. And this is how you beat it. This is how you, you know, you find out you become self-aware. And so I don't know if that's necessarily a question or just what you said earlier. No, and in, in many male cultures, especially at that time, it's more socially acceptable to be an addict than it mm -hmm. is to be vulnerable, than it is to be depressed, than it is to be because it, it's like you, so true. you can fix that right there are recovery programs that men can go to and be with other men in alcohol or you know drug abuse groups and that's considered for whatever reason to be more socially acceptable than going to a support group um, huh. for men who are actually depressed that that's that works against the grain that's so that is so true yeah it's okay to be an alcoholic but it's not okay to be something yeah. else because by yeah. god you better not admit you're fucking sad yeah because <laughs> right. alcohol keeps you angry yeah. but one of the things that that social i feel like you went through and and I, I i resonate with that i don't know that i had you know the same experience that you did but that that time frame for me was certainly turbulent in terms of mm -hmm. who the hell am i what am i going to do with my life and mm -hmm. who am i going to be and what's that going to look like but you're confronted at that age, 18 to 24, with, with the narrative that you were given growing up of who you are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what are you supposed to personify and embody as a young man? What's okay for you to be? What's not okay for you? And, you know, I think a lot of us are sent messages that are pretty narrow in terms of what's acceptable mm -hmm. and what's not acceptable. And I think Enoch talked about that sort of being an intuitive, sort of highly sensitive kid is you know for me growing up I always felt like was considered a weakness and not a gift in every way it was never appreciated mm -hmm. um had I used my physical stature you know to be a great football player that would have been considered to be a great and wonderful you know yeah I don't have six foot two I've always been sort of a big guy but, but I don't have that sort of aggressive part of me I've just never been able to tap into that that but I just don't think it's there you know, give me a book. And there's just like this big guy over in the corner, <laughs> you know, reading a book. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't see that killer instinct in your eyes, Jason. No, no, no. It, it's there. You, you have to cross me pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine, I'll try to stand your good side. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember it would take like my dad, essentially, who's an awesome guy and one of my best friends of all time, but it would take him breaking me down to where I was like bawling, crying. Mm -hmm. And then the next play I'd go and, you know, run through three guys and tackle the, the quarterback. But it was like, it took utter self-destruction to yeah. tap into whatever that was to, 
to achieve that. Yeah. Well, in the message in that is use your anger, use your anger, use yeah. your anger. It's tackle and, and fuel. Use that tackle and fuel. <laughs> and to think, and to think that that message doesn't translate itself, you know, and permeate through other areas of our lives. Oh yeah. That is often as men, we hear that it's okay to be angry. You can go break something and that's not know, just okay. Like that is something to be desired. That, that That's a goal. That's, and that's still a crutch that I find myself constantly um, whenever I'm backed in a corner, even though I've done all this work with the meditation, even though I've done all this work, that is the, the quickest thing I go right back to if I'm faced with something that I feel trapped at all. It is instantly, let's build up the, the anger armor, lash out at the wife, lash out at the kids, mm-hmm. let them know who's in charge and that you know I'm not going to get pushed around I'm not going to get, you know, bulldozed or, or whatever. And you need to listen to me. And this is real. And you know, I'm important. Yeah, and I'll it- tell you, before I sort of backdoored my way into uh, into therapy, and when my, my marriage counselor gave us a copy of Terry Reel's book, I don't want to talk about it. Like I had been just angry all the time for years. And when I had all those supports knocked out from under me and all of a sudden found myself in my first real bout of major depression, I tell you what, man, anger feels a hell of a lot better than that. (laughs) Yeah, because you can release anger, right? Anger wants to come out, but depression is very internalized. Like that's in your head. You can't just yell out your depression. And I don't think that people in general understand that, but I think men in particular feel compelled to hold that in. I'd rather sit around with my bottle of beer or bottle of whiskey and tell the story around the campfire than to yeah. ever reveal that, I, you know, I was crying on the way to the liquor store, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I'm saying? That yeah. there, there's so much within that. And I think we need to just kind of open the doorway sometimes and go, and you start to get the weird eyes like Enoch has right now, like, wait, other people do that? We're hiding in plain sight. So it's what you were talking about, sort of moving to anger or aggression. For a lot of us, it's it's flight. You know, it's escapism. You know, yeah. let me get this new boat and I'll do this. Or let me get this new, this thing. You yes. know, that's going to make me whole. Uh, you know, way out. And yeah. I've seen a lot of men do that and then come back and go, you know, now I just have this debt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, you know, I was, uh, I was working on a uh, blog post the other day about finding balance in life. And I had to include, because it came back to me, this quote from Sarah Silverman, who is delightfully uh, irreverent and funny to me anyway. <laughs> uh, she had this song about the porn star and, and the, 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 one of the big taglines was there's not enough penises in the world to fill up your heart hole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's something about that that's makes you think, you know, yeah. Why are, and as a culture men, why, why is it never enough? You know, what are we searching for? And my work kind of reveals sometimes that, it's the projection, it's the inner feeling of not enoughness mm-hmm. that comes out. And so men, you know, not going to want to sit around maybe and talk about their feelings, but they might feel more comfortable purchasing something or, or finding something that represents their ego. So if I'm yelling at you, 
and I'm telling you, you better listen. That's my ego keeping me safe from how I really feel. Exactly. Hmm. Right. And if, and if I'm in control of you, then my ego wins, but that doesn't serve you. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You know? and yeah. So and I, doesn't, really, and doesn't serve you either. You no, know? no, doesn't serve anybody. Nobody and, wins. Yeah. Not to, and not to keep uh, harping on Terry real, but he had a, uh, I like his ideas that he talks about, about self-esteem and that, you know, we, as men in particular, we're very good at finding all of these things around us to feed our self-esteem, whether that's success, whether that's being desired uh, or, or, or owning things or gambling or alcohol or high risk behaviors, all these things that make us feel good. And, and none of it's ever going to work in the long term unless there's something underneath there that you actually like yourself. Yeah. Look at all the movies we grew up watching, guys, where people were gambling and reckless, Wall Street, you know, oh, driving yeah. cars. Like you see these very, you know, masculine, you know, ego driven personifications. And we were kids of the 80s. Like we, that's all we had. Oh, you God, know? Yeah. You know, the, uh, the sort of a uh, reckless, reckless, drunk gambler, you know, womanizer that those were, yeah. th those were people held up like that. I like, ah, oh, God, I want to be like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> if you look back at that, it's like, you know, there's, there's probably like 15 seconds of, of Sheen going, you know, how many yachts is enough? And, you know, this is the, this is the gym that you're supposed to learn from it. And I've spent an hour and a half, two hours, having learning the opposite lesson greed, good <laughs> and all this other crap and yeah. it's like oh yeah there's this little gym yeah yeah it's like it's I'm like the baby, that. The baby jesus inside the king cake i'm like no no yeah. i'm good i've had enough king cake yeah about the <laughs> king cake the whole time king cake's what it's about well let me uh i've got a, a few questions we could run through if you want to if you want to dive into it um yeah. yeah i was thinking let's let's just start with what gets you out of bed in the morning man Literally what gets me out of bed is my wife and daughter. And so they wake me up, but they're- <laughs> Like in, physically <laughs> they wake up. <laughs> yeah. College professors don't always wake <laughs> up and be at work at 8 a.m. <laughs> and so um, they, they're in public schools. So I was a public school teacher and mm -hmm. my daughter Eliza goes to first grade in the school that she goes to. Oh, and so, then she started preschool and kindergarten. I've always been a part of- getting her up and getting her ready. And mm -hmm. I make her lunch every day. And um, that's just kind of part. And, and my day kind of starts when they get in the car, I walk them out of the car and, you know, put them in. But, you know, there's part of that is I can't imagine now what my life would be like without having to do that, you know, that structure and just that, making that. her lunch is something to be grateful for. So we'll talk about Zen, man. Book. That's a, that was, a, that makes me think of uh, a Thich Nhat Hanh where he talked about, you know, yeah. when you're doing an action, it's not something you have to do. It's, it's something you get to do. You yeah. Know? And you and, think about it as, you know, it could be this like really, you know, terrible chore of having to get up and do these things in the morning. Yeah. I'm going to slap this sandwich in this box as quick yeah. as I can. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt like my parents felt growing up. <laughs> I'm still there. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get out of that, but that's, that's literally where I'm still at. It's so. about the work, brother. You got to keep doing the work. I, gotta do the work. I know. I know. <laughs> but the other side of that is, you know, I get to, it serves me to do something for her. You know, it serves me in every way and it serves her. But like this, this little simple activity is, 
you know, something that she looks, you know, if her lunch wasn't there, you know, her snack wasn't there, you know, she, it would just be imbalanced for her. She wouldn't. Yeah. Right. God bless her. She's already gone to kindergarten and first grade in the pandemic with a mask on and with a plexiglass. And, you know, the least we can do is, you know, give her a good snack. And that's they're just so, kind of how I thought about it. They're know? so freaking resilient. It's amazing. She didn't think it's weird because, that's you know, that's all she knows. We think it's just terribly sad, but she yeah. doesn't. No, you know, that's, that's our feelings. We think, oh, that's just terrible. Now she goes to school, she learns, she's learning how to read. It, it happens, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of fascinating to watch the world through, through that. That looms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My well, kids have been. Uh, what's I said in uh, Biloxi Blues, you know, it was, it was the best times because we were young. We yeah. Just, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're in basic training <laughs> about to go die. We didn't know any better. <laughs> we didn't know any better. It was, it was great. <laughs> Her biggest worry is like, you know, is the mask on right? She'll get, she'll be fine. Oh, right. That's she'll great. That's great. My kids, I worry about my kids. They've been home for a year now and they're a little nervous in crowds now. Mm-hmm. The idea of being around other people is a little, they're skittish with it. It's a, yeah. I don't know. I worry about, and, you know, it's like, it's like you were saying, it's things I'm putting on them. I mean, I worry about it more than they do. And I think they'll, they'll probably be just fine, but you know, it is a concern that we've done some harm to them by cloistering them. <laughs> Maybe that's just like, you know, yeah, we need to look at that more as we're, 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 we've done this harm to ourselves and we're projecting that onto them, obviously a lot yeah. more than probably is there, you know? And projections are good. You know, I think every, they sort of are pejorative nature, but if you're projecting safe harm, you know, it's not that you're doing harm to them and you're projecting your own stuff. You're, you're wanting to keep them safe and we've never been through this before. And, you know, there's a natural worry, you know, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think it's fine for Enoch to worry that they're going to have anoclophobia, you know, and be crowd phobic, right. but also, you know, are they healthy and is your house safe and do they have a place to live where they feel emotionally safe is far more important than you know the other things and then that just kind of has to be enough because what we've been asked to do in the pandemic is is fucking impossible it is an impossibility what we have been asked to do so that's my wife and i've had a lot of those conversations over this past year particularly in the last six months we're like you know it's got to be enough we're doing what we can you know, yep. we're all just surviving. Mm-hmm. You know, I know this is your line of research, but how do you take care of yourself? Uh, what? How do you keep yourself sane? Not good. <laughs> Practice what I teach, not what I do. I'm kind of thinking it doesn't involve a bottle of whiskey. That's what I'm kind of thinking it doesn't yeah. involve. It, it, it involves less than it has in the past. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, that's true. Not that I'm turning anything down, but... You know, self-care is, it's sound, it's, it's an overused term. Self-care and mindfulness to me are like the words that just make me skin crawl. But we need to operationalize these variables. You can't just say, you know, you need to practice self-care. You need to be mindful and we're working on that. But really what works for me is being on a schedule and being on a schedule of doing things that are life-giving, you know, so 
when my exercise gets off or like in the holidays, when I decide I'm just not going to do it for a couple months and then I don't want to, you know, that becomes the new pattern, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Spending time with, with my family is life giving for me Mm -hmm. and, and making sure that that time is there and that I'm present during that time, you Mm -hmm. know, that's, that brings a lot of joy to my life. Uh, I grew up on the beaches and so that's my place, you know, so just, you know, that's where I feel the most peace Um, I'm a man of faith so I pray and do a devotion and and keep my church practice up Um, I don't want to let that go and meditation and finding you know just meditation has probably proven to be the the best anti-anxiety drug (laughs) although I am on other treatments meditation is uh, uh, proven to be as good as a Xanax, if you do it right. It's a multi-pronged yeah. attack, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't do the Xanax. I, I, I tend to go through the entire bottle in like a week. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, if and one was good. Get, I don't get up. <laughs> if one was, yeah, it's kind of like t- it's candy, right? One I of these know, right? I'm like, I don't really three, feel it. I, I think, really I, could get, what I, think I, I could get more relaxed. <laughs> Yeah, meditation is one of those things like exercise to me that it's when I have trouble with it is when I start to feeling good and yeah. I and like things are going smoothly and then I just decide to coast for a while mm-hmm. and it takes me about a week or two to realize the wheels are starting to fall off again. Yeah, yeah, you can't get too comfortable with it. It's just like, you know, your eating habits or your exercise habits, you find your place and then you feel really good and then your your brain, your ego, right, wants to think you've licked it. Yep, got this figured out. It's on lockdown. Yeah, this self-care plan really works. Dr. Newell's research is great. (laughs) And and then in a week, your brain has had time to go back to not the the opposite of life-giving, sort of the the soul. It goes back to those things that don't serve you, but that feel so good, like Mm -hmm. a bottle of bourbon. Mm -hmm. Like you get back to those things, those old patterns, those old sort of, demons that are sitting on your shoulder you know telling you it's okay those well those things that you know not doing you any favors but uh man it's easy you know (laughs) it's a hell of a lot easier to have a drink to go meditate and you know a drink will make you relax but it also is you know in your central nervous system making you depressed at the same time and and, you know all the other things that it does yeah yeah and it's not easy. None of the things that I talk about are easy. I mean, it takes a, a lot of commitment to just do one of them. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I do, you know, long workshops or intensive sort of long, all day or weekend workshops on self-care, it's not about, you know, doing all of it at once because it all takes time and it all takes effort. It's about really leaning into what you feel like you need the most. <clears throat> yeah. So what is that thing that, that serves you the most? And, you know, what, what have you, what are you paying the least amount of attention to? And in my data, and this is, you know, not just tried, I mean, it's thousands of points of data. It points to that people tend to take from themselves pretty readily in the areas that, that are the most important. So if you're stressed, you know, and you're experiencing a lot of work-related stress, this comes from my burnout research, the dietary and the nutrition habits, they go out the window first. Yeah. 
exercise actually came out first in my research. So it's like, if I've had a stressful week and things are not going well, you know, that 5 a.m. workout, people feel almost zero guilt or shame of hitting the snooze button and going, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Me, I, I know the exercise benefits me. Intellectually, I know it's part of the, you know, I'll feel better all day, but I don't care. And so that's, that's the problem. And so you can't really have to kind of work on that. And then the eating habits are next, eating and sleeping. I often think of uh, this little cartoon I saw one time where there's a little stick figure saying, screw you, future self. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And we were talking the other night and he says, I bought some um, double stuffed Oreos. And immediately (laughs) I was like, we are so bros. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't put words in my mouth. They were mega stuff Oreos. Yes. This is like the step above those. double stuff. Oh man, it's intense. Like you'll never go back. Now I wonder if you could do some data points on that. Cause my mother-in-law is always talking about, she's like, yeah, I bet you like, I, you don't like ice cream a lot more now that yeah, I'm drinking like a year and a half. And I'm like, you know what? She's kind of right. I've been, she's got a point <laughs> chocolate these days. And I used to never, I mean, I would Me walk too. by anything that's sweet. Like, man, eh, it's okay. I like salty. Give me, give yeah. me, give me the tequila. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you're drinking and smoking cigarettes, it kind of allows those <laughs> that that's your sweet tooth, you know. Right. That, yeah, that, you're meeting that dopamine. You're getting that dopamine hit. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know, sugar is going to do this, or you know, I can do, and they don't always go well together. Although I used to really love a, a cupcake and a, a glass of wine, like that's a nice combination. Chocolate and wine is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys equally grossed out though by the uh, uh, mint looking one or the all the different like flavors that are coming up with the the Oreos or you get uh, yeah I don't yeah yeah no, I'm a purist okay. I mean yeah. you could put as much stuffing in that some bitch as you can but yeah. other than that I don't even the orangey color ones at Halloween uh, I, I'm yeah not, I'm not down I'm not down let's do some rapid fire you up for some rapid fire Jason yeah yeah hit me when you can win fire. okay if okay you're behind when, right now you can win. Nobody's when did you first yet. feel like you were a grown man? Yeah, so um, probably when I left home for college um, in the 18 to 24 bracket that Sochi and I were talking about. It's mm-hmm. when I felt the most grown and probably the most vulnerable at the same time. Hmm. Um, getting married was a substantial step in that. Yeah. I, mean, I felt in having children, I think it's a logical process. I think my, I don't necessarily felt I didn't feel more masculine when I got married, if that makes yeah. sense. I just mm-hmm. felt more grown. Grown you know, up. Like I was moving into part of manhood that that was going to take me in a different place. And, and and being a dad, certainly, you know, it does that's, nothing. That's have some focus in there. Wow. <laughs> being a All dad, three of these things, I felt like I was faking. Like I was <laughs> a kid and I was just faking these new things, so. So so says he's he's hoping for by 50, he's going to be there. (laughs) Right. I'm thinking by 50, I might start feeling like, hey. (laughs) I don't think I'm ever going to feel like I'm like the man. I just want him to look at me and say, there there goes a (laughs) grown-up. Yeah, I feel like, no, there's just the old creepy dude. He's still a kid. That's the it's oldest, shame, creepiest man. teenager I've ever seen. That is the oldest, creepiest teenager I've ever. That's exactly the way I feel. I feel like an old, creepy teenager. Yeah. And you know what? What is wrong with that? I mean, I don't do you know, feel happy? Right. 
Yeah. You know, it's Tara it, Brock would say those feelings belong. <laughs> what? Enix Rekerson, Tara Brock. That's, that's genius. <laughs> So, wow. um, so what do you, what does it mean to you to be a man? To kind of leap it from where we were talking about, and has your answer changed over time? Yeah. So, I mean, now what I was saying about, you know, I think there's a dichotomy there for me when you frame up that question, because hmm. automatically my brain goes, "All right, does he want me to tell him what I think it means to be masculine or to be a man?" You pick. Um, for me, being a man, like what I feel like being the best man that I can be is to be a good provider for my family, mm. to be a good father to my child and a good husband to my wife, to treat, to be good friends to my friends that are my friends, my true friends, you know, mm. my loving friends. And I think being a man for me is, is just being human to others, not feeling like I'm above anything or anyone else, you know, to always work from a place of kindness. You know, I don't want to be judged on what house I live in, what my salary looks like, what car I drive, um, whether I'm a member of one group or another, I really want to be judged on these other things. And if that doesn't work for you, like if you don't want to be around me because being a good dad is important to me, then then, I, then we're not going to be friends anyway. So, you know, just kind of, you know, I've just kind of learned that. And so it's what you were saying about masculinity or whatever earlier, getting married and, and really having a kid just kind of killed that. I felt like every emotional being, like I was highly sensitive to begin with, mm-hmm. biologically, like having a little human that depends on you. It just is like, makes me just want to weep you know like let's just let's just turn those dials on up yeah you know it does i've always said that children you know uh, exacerbate any Mm -hmm. any situation that was there before and Mm. for me a lot of it was that whole it brought out even more anger and it brought out even more self-doubt and stuff because i'm sitting there looking at it judging myself even more because i'm like i am not good enough yeah right be your father you you deserve so much better than whatever i'll ever be able to give you yeah you know all this shit that i've done in my past and all these chains that i'm carrying around with me i'm going god you should have never had me as your dad with all this crap that i've already done mm-hmm. you know and, oh yeah yeah i remember yeah, all that. I, I thought and it was uh, awesome too <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was great it was a great time don't get me wrong <laughs> yeah I, I felt like guilt and shame was one of the biggest overriding emotions of fatherhood to me yeah it was, it yeah. was just, you should never feel like you're enough, you know? Mm-hmm. But you know what? Part of that is good to me, Enoch. And I connected with you. I was like, how the burden of how much you love your children is a wonderful burden to bear. Yeah. Like that's not suffering. I mean, it is because Lord knows children will make you suffer. I think we know that, <laughs> you know, marriage too. Yeah. But, but that burden, is, is such a beautiful burden to have on your shoulder that you don't think that that, that human is so valuable to you that you could never do enough to make them happy. Yeah. And that's I don't cool. want it to be sound like, you know, make you anxious. Cause that's where I go with mine. I think mm-hmm. with me is that, you know, am I going to, I don't want to give a legacy of anxiety that I brought from my childhood 
into. I mean, that's that is my greatest fears. That's there's going to be things that that were part of my life experience that that have made me who I am that I don't necessarily want to pass down. You know, I think so. Sharon, you say that that you're scared that you're not going to be enough. I mean, I, I just think that's a wonderful fear to have. It's a good kind of hurt, huh? A way to keep yourself in check that's not sure. harmful. I like that. Are you going to fuck it up? Yeah, I mean, we all do. Sure. <laughs> Hopefully it didn't kill him, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. What makes you feel vulnerable and what makes you feel brave? When I'm anxious, I am vulnerable. I'm very high strung. My central nervous system is wired up. Um, I can get a really twisted head around that. And so when I'm anxious, I'm, I'm really vulnerable. My wife knows that. She knows that if I'm starting to dial up with that, that, that she has to pretty much say, you're acting crazy, Jason. Let's just, let's just pull it down a little bit. Things will be fine. You know, that's when I really need that support of like, you know, the pandemic, the world's not going to fall apart. We're going to be okay. Oh God, man. I bet yeah, this, this my, past year is just like, I'm not an anxious person and my anxiety has just been through the roof. The, the, the capital <clears throat> thing, the insurrection, like, Oh God damn. You know, I'm starting to go through like, Oh Lord, are we going to be able to keep our families safe? Like, yeah. Oh God. I'm like, maybe I can, maybe we can, I can get us out of here. You know, we'll get refugee status and (laughs) we got all all our uh, uh, passports up. Yeah. (laughs) Good. good. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to retreat back down to rural Southeast Alabama in the country to the old family compound. There you go. You know, ready, you know, there's food, staple food resources, you know, down there. And, you know, I'm having these, these thoughts. And so that's, that's when I feel the most vulnerable. I don't know when I, when I feel brave is um, I feel really brave when I'm helping other people hmm. confront their, their shit. Um, I don't know why I don't feel brave when I'm doing that. I'm just saying like for other people, <laughs> I get a sense yeah. of, of pushing <laughs> to their greatest potential makes me feel really strong. I don't know about brave, you know, and I feel brave when my support people hold me up on their shoulders and kind of go, we're here for you. I mean, I feel brave when I have other people around me that I trust. Like that increases my sense of, of, of bravery. That's a great answer. Um, yeah. yeah I don't think I'm like a, space. Yeah. a brave person per se. I've never considered myself to be cavalier like that. Um, but I'm definitely scrappy. Like if somebody, you know, wants to, you know, have a fight out in the front yard and you need somebody on your side, I'll, I'll, I'll run. <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> well, you'll run to the fight, not away from the fight, right? No, I'm in. Okay, I cool. in. Let me. I'm going to write that down uh, so I can I can uh, put yeah. you down in case I need it. <laughs> I always felt like I I turned tail every time I, I it actually came up to something like that when it was all on me. Yeah, if it were just me, I would run away. But if somebody I care about is is in danger, yeah. I get brave, really brave. Then, like I I'm, yeah, there's a level of. Yeah. Something switches and you're like, well, it's time to turn on. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Last question. What book or books do you think have had the most influence on you? That's favorite question of the day. Um, and you know, I just might have like, you know, if you want to go really super dork or douche, um, I, I can go as dorky and douchey as you want to go. Yeah. Let's roll. So, so especially can. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, my wheelhouse. Personal collection is you have to read Walden. Oh, that's like, yeah. Yeah. 
Very, my man, my man, I love it. Wow. So, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson gave Henry David Thoreau that property to just go. And, and you know, in my heart, I'm kind of a, a monk. I want to just kind of sit and think and reflect. And I love the transcendentalist period, you know, mm -hmm. in literature. So I think this a teacher I had in high school and went to this little, you know, terrible, we were a Title I school. We were like, we were just poor school and put, had some really earnest teachers. And my favorite teacher gave me a little, almost like a little paperback when you buy at Barnes and Noble for the reading list one mm -hmm. she wrote inside of it. And I still got it. She said, read this book. It'll change your life. That's wonderful. And she was the first person in my life that said, that told me that it was okay to be smart. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know all the other guys are playing football and are doing all these other things. And, but she, she was the first person to explain to me that, my ability to think critically would get me further in life than anything else. God, that was the time it, you needed to hear it. And it was yeah. liberating. So that's uh, awesome. And I, just to stop you, I have a very similar Walden story. I was about you're that age uh -huh. and it was a friend of my dad's who I, I had a lot of respect for just said, Hey, you need to read Walden. And I mm -hmm. knew nothing about it. He's like, you need to read it. Essentially it'll change your life. And uh, it, you know, it's an amazing book. It's good stuff. It did. It, yeah. it changed everything for me. Um, and I read it, you know, over and over. And, you know, when you use the word bookish in our conversation, I know I touched on that earlier, just I, I haven't heard that kind mm. of as an, an adjective. Is it an adjective? Yeah. It's just yeah. as a descriptor of someone. Oh, it's one of my favorite adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> and you have some really good ones. Like your book, Enoch has got a really interesting vocabulary. Yeah. It's all anime books he reads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't be eyeing my Akira and being jealous. I, I see it back there. <laughs> Real books. stuff, man. Get get into you know reading, being bookish. I think and it really saved me from being still down there. Like I don't know if I hadn't decided at some point that that was okay to just be like in my room reading Lord of the Rings or something, doing something mm -hmm. like that, instead of pursuing these other more traditional interests. I don't know that I wait. I mean, most of my friends didn't go to college and they don't have, I mean, I don't know that I would have been brave enough in that point to, to leave the safety and security of the old family compound. Hmm. So. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, the one book I would recommend to anyone who's interested in growth, Janice Marcherano. I don't know if you've read her book. It's called um, <laughs> Finding the Space to Lead. I bought that book in 2015 and it was a new york times bestseller at the time and janice who runs the institute for mindful leadership she was a ceo of like nabisco just sort of this really big you know corporate you know job and and just had an existential crisis and just decided to walk away from that and and, and pursue something else that's awesome and so they uh, nabisco or wherever sent her to a workshop with john cabot zinn as the leader of course who is sort of the you know the mindfulness guy sort of from the east coast who sort of developed a lot of the theory around mindfulness and hmm. she, she never came back like he's he's <laughs> her heart and, and they looked the, at I went to a retreat with her in Garrison that she was leading. So Garrison, New York, which is, and it was in an abandoned Buddhist monastery. And we were in that monastery for about a week. 
she taught me how to meditate. That's, that is where, I mean, I thought I was, you know, doing some kind of quasi breathing or somatic work. Yeah. But I mean, we, we meditated, we stayed in silence. You wrote in your journal, you know, you could, you could do this. This sounds like some of the, Oh man, this is like on my, my wife and I were talking about, you know, you've got your bucket list, your things after pandemic is over when you can go do things and going on a silent retreat is like right up there on our list. Like we just, I need to do that. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking that we could go on one, <laughs> but I didn't Love know it. it's like a wife thing. <laughs> so. Love it. No, no. no I'll tell my wife. Room. Sorry, I'm gonna my, go with you. Yeah, mine, <laughs> mine would be like this. Is totally. I could get so much done instead of this. So yeah. you have a bed, you have a desk, you have a lamp, and you're in this Buddhist monastery where you know there's very little creature comforts. Wow. And you, and it's it was a great week, and it, it was really where I learned to to meditate. And she was just a great teacher, but her book is sort of grounded in her experience in the corporate world. So this is a really good, strong read for men. Who, That's great. It's really a mindfulness book camouflaged with finding the space to lead. The title is, is very deceptive. And, and lead, L-E-A-D? Yeah, finding the space to lead. Very cool. Um, I don't know. What I'm reading right now, though, which I recommend to everybody, is I'm reading, this is pretty pop culture-y, you know, sort of like social media influencer, but I'm reading Jay Shetty's Think Like a Monk. He was actually a monk, cool. um, and but he's not anymore. He's a social media influencer. Let's say with so, hair like that, you can't you can't be a monk. You know how much product yeah. that dude's got in his hair. You can't look that good and be. No. Yeah, he's yeah. too pretty he's to too be a pretty. monk. He's too he's pretty. Way pretty. That's why and, I never uh, be a monk. I'm too pretty. Yeah, yeah that's what so, I've always said about you. Thanks. So, uh, how did you get turned on to that? How'd you hear, hear about that one? So I follow JM his podcast. And um, mm -hmm. he and, you know, Lewis Howells have a relationship. And I don't know if you're familiar with Lewis. He, mm -hmm. he has like the book called The School of Greatness. And it's also a good read for men. He was, he's a professional athlete, kind of an Olympian, but he went through a really dark period of depression where he was um, living on his sister's couch and huh. had an injury in professional sports. And he wasn't going to be able to be an athlete anymore. And he had to try to figure out, you know, what the hell am I going to do if I'm not an athlete? But part of his journey was he was in like a, a men's group or a support group at some point. And he, he remembered that he was harmed as a child by a coach oh, wow. in a pretty significant way. And he's huh. been just, I mean, the bravery that he has about disclosing that information hmm. and really talking about the abuse that he suffered, um, and, and how angry it made him for so much of his life and how, you know, it was really inspiring to me. I know the stories exist. <laughs> I know they exist, man. I've been doing therapy for a long time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the anger and the things that, that seem to be the common threads in my research are just, they're poison. They poison our families. They poison our body, you know, our bodies. Mm -hmm. They run through our central nervous systems and our souls just like a toxin and men suffer unnecessarily by it because they feel like they just have to keep that burden inside because it compromises the ego and the sense of masculinity to say, guys, I've just had the worst week. Yeah. And I think we're told, keep going, move forward, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put your head down, shut up, mm -hmm. you know, 
don't don't be a you know what can we say that on this podcast absolutely yes don't yeah. be a pussy See, about don't it. be a pussy don't be yeah. a pussy. Yeah. keep moving and i don't mean that to be you know demoralizing to women in any way but that's the message that men are sent absolutely that's internalized yeah yeah, yeah. so and and you, like you describe it that poison uh, that it's almost like a parasite that thrives in that darkness and 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 when we keep it held in like that it's just you can't if you can't get it out to the light it's never going yeah. anywhere yeah the, this whole journey has been about just trying to banish that uh, that isolationism and no man is an island and yet we all treat ourselves like we are one and constantly constantly try i mean i just had a kind of a big i call them sober lows now and then I just started isolating myself on a, a particular behavior I was doing. The next thing you know, it's like, God, I'm right back where I was a year and a half ago. And this was not the intent. Yeah. Why did I let myself get here again? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the judgment in that, you know, that men hold themselves accountable sometimes in such a way. It always is a peeve of mine that women are so much more forgiving and they're so much more hey it's okay that you you had that that's normal you know but, mm -hmm. but our frame of reference it tends to be is you know with our masculinity our egos tend to be so different you know that's why i say people line up around the corner to buy Brene brown i love her i read her stuff but you know men are not lining up around the corner you know the market i think i told enoch you know in terms of marketing my next book there's been really hard for me to market a men's health and wellness book because the data suggests that it won't make any money don't worry there's this new uh groundbreaking podcast that that's just coming out that is going to just really till the soil for you you're going to have yeah. fertile ground to drop that book don't you worry basically you're on like joe rogan right right before it just took off yeah. so like joe rogan except cool no yeah. offense joe yeah joe rogan <laughs> you're smoking blunts and <laughs> making dick jokes constantly Though we do have a few every now and then. So, yeah, you know. And I meant to tell you this earlier. I'm really hearing the Texan accent come out a lot more from you than I do from Enoch. And I like I know, it. right? Never, never from there. But uh, my uh my my mentor, even though we've never met, is uh Matthew McConaughey. And I believe I am him reincarnated. <laughs> he's Texan, he's, right? He's from Texas. Still, uh, he is. All right, all right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> That's great. I can hear that. <laughs> i saw uh, i saw this really stupid cartoon just a little while ago that made me think of you and it had this like you know the the giant dog monster from the end of ghostbusters yeah it had one of those driving a car like mcconaughey was in and uh days of confused days and confused at the window he said are you the gatekeeper yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said Man. no he's like be a lot zooler if you were <laughs> <laughs> so terrible i love it <laughs> the gatekeeper is great yeah. are you the gatekeeper are you the key master i'm the key master, key master. I'm the key be master. a lot cooler if you were awesome hey jason thanks once again this has been so much fun and yeah. i think we we've got you were so kind to us uh getting our our interview feet wet a little bit and uh, yeah. this was yeah, just a blast this is, this is yeah. epic Really I'm appreciate that when when this is the next thing that that my that I'm going to be attached to it in any way. I just Absolutely. hold a lot of gratitude for that. So when you guys are just you know 
you this is becomes your new job and, and yeah. you're able to move up to other things um so you know, you're probably going to be uh, called to uh, testify and you, you make <laughs> you know i can do it witness testimony. you just have to promise to be uh to come back on the show when you're doing your book tour okay <laughs> oh, yeah. right because that happens a lot in academics you know, <laughs> all right thanks again jason thanks yes, so again, sir hey hey take care. love you man bye bye well, folks, that's it for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. God knows we always do. Don't forget to subscribe so you can continue to follow along on this journey. And please join us. Let's get better together. Or at the very least, 10% less shitty. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and now Clubhouse at True Brody Sattva. That's True, T-R-U. And don't forget to check in at our blog, thebrodysattva.com keep up to date on what's going on in our world. As always, this show is written by Enoch Daniel and Sosh Woodbine and produced by me. And special thanks to Scott Holmes, who wrote our theme music. Until next time, keep working, keep seeking, and keep living that Brody Sattva life. Bye now.